Good morning. It's great to see everyone here today. And I invite you to turn with me to Romans 3. If you need a Bible, you will find one under the chairs. If you like sermon notes, you will find some in the bulletin. If you need a pen, I can't help you there. You're on your own. Romans chapter 3, I'm going to read what uh, many consider to be the most important passage in the Word of God. Now, I hope I've got your attention. The most important passage in the Word of God. You know, that necessarily implies, if indeed this is the most important passage in the Word of God, it necessarily implies that this is the most important passage ever written. That has my attention, and I do pray it has your attention. Follow along as I read in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance. He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What do you think? The most important passage in the Word of God. Interesting. We'll get to it in just a moment. Uh, Ricky's going to bring up a slide behind me. I have a screen down here so I can tell when it's come up. And on this slide, there will be a verse at the top. The righteous shall live by faith. It is extracted from Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Uh, The verse in its entirety states that in the gospel, that is in the good news of salvation, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed From faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It is a quotation from the book of Habakkuk. Now, here is how we are approaching the book of Romans, simply as follows. All Paul is doing in this book is explaining that statement. The righteous shall live by faith. He quotes it from the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, however you like to say it. Don't take issue with me. And he expounds on it in this epistle, this letter to the Romans. And basically what he does is he comes at this doctrine, simply put, I don't think I'm guilty of oversimplifying, but simply put, from five distinct or different angles. And basically what he's doing is he comes at it from each angle. He is addressing an issue or responding to a question that this statement gives rise to. The righteous shall live by faith. And so the first question this statement gives rise to is this. Why? 
Why must the righteous live by faith? Why must the righteous live by a received righteousness from outside themselves? Well, Paul answers that question in the first section. It begins in chapter 1, verse 18, concludes in chapter 3, verse 20, and we can write that word over the entire section, condemnation. And so the righteous must live by faith. They must receive an external righteousness, a reckoned righteousness, because they are, we are, unrighteous. That's what he proves in the first section. He unmasks the severity of our sin, and he shows that we are the objects of divine wrath. Therefore, our hope resides in this glorious truth that the righteous shall live by faith. The second issue he deals with, beginning in chapter 3, verse 21, through to the end of chapter 5, is this term justification. And exactly what it means to be justified in God's sight. And he roots our justification in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he demonstrates how we receive, how we become recipients of this received righteousness. We do so by identifying with Christ in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. That's pretty simple. But then beginning in chapter 6, he handles a different issue. The issue is this. Okay, I understand the first section. I'm condemned in God's sight. Uh, my legal standing is simply this, unrighteous. I understand the second section, that God changes my legal standing in Christ, and he declares me to be righteous. Now, here's what I'm struggling with. That seems to indicate to me that I can now live however I please. I'm in Christ. My legal position is changed. My legal standing is altered. I'm saved. I'm secure in Christ. Now I can live and do whatever I want. Paul responds to that in chapters 6, 7, and 8. In chapter 6, he speaks of two masters. In chapter 7, he speaks of two marriages. And in chapter 8, he speaks of two minds. And as he speaks of these two masters, two marriages, two minds, his point is what? His point is this. There is a second blessing to union with Christ. When we become one with Christ, yes, that changes our legal standing in God's sight, but it also transforms us morally. Not only do we become the beneficiaries of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection legally, we become the beneficiaries of his death, burial, and resurrection morally. And so it makes a change in us whereby there is this great battle between the flesh and the spirit, and we grow in sanctification. Then he addresses a fourth issue, very interesting section in the book of Romans, chapters 9, 10, and 11. And here the central issue is God's faithfulness, because let's face it, most of the Jews have rejected the gospel. The vast majority of the Jews do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, God made certain promises to the Jews. It appears from an onlooker's vantage point that God has reneged on his promises. God has failed to keep his covenant. God, we might even accuse him of being unfaithful. And Paul addresses this head on in the fourth section. And he takes us into the realms of the doctrine of election. And then in the fifth and final section, chapter 12, verse 1, the section begins with that great word, therefore. In other words, if you get the first four sections, therefore, here is how you should live. Chapter 12, verse 1, 
through to chapter 15, verse 13, the application. That is how we are approaching this epistle. Five sections as Paul handles that citation out of the book of Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. Now we are, and I do not say this flippantly, praise God, we are finished with the first section. It was brutal. It was nothing short of brutal. As Paul holds up a mirror and forces us to take a long, unpleasant, painful look at ourselves. We are finished with the first section. You can take away that slide, Ricky. Thank you. What Paul has basically done in that section is he has taken us by the hand and he has walked us, figuratively speaking, into God's tribunal. God is the judge. And Paul has presented the accusation against us. The accusation brought against us. It is simply this. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Why? We suppress the truth of God by our unrighteousness. He calls witnesses. He proves it. He calls creation to testify against those who do not have a Bible. And creation's testimony is simply this. What can be known of God is eternal power, his divine attributes. What can be known of God is clearly seen. Man is without excuse. Man reveals himself immediately. God reveals himself immediately, directly to all people in all places at all times. And he does so through the cosmos, the created order, which testify not only to his existence, but show us and tell us something of his nature. But man has rejected that revelation. Professing to be wise, man has become a fool. Paul calls a second witness, Scripture. Here he's thinking of those who actually have the Bible. In his day, the Jews. They possessed the oracles of God. But even they made an outright mess of it and misinterpreted the oracles of God and turned the oracles of God into a legal system of self-righteousness. And they became obsessed with their performance. They became obsessed, for example, with the rite of circumcision. And they completely missed the testimony and the central message of those oracles, those scriptures which were entrusted to him, them. And then Paul brings it all to a head, doesn't he, in chapter 3. And he gives the verdict right there in verses 9 and 10. All are under sin. And as a result, verses 20, 21, every mouth is stopped. It's a legal term. It is a legal expression. Every mouth is stopped. Every mouth is closed. That when it comes to the tribunal of God, there is absolute silence as all people stand condemned in the presence of God for having suppressed his truth by their unrighteousness. That was the first section. And again, I am not saying this flippantly. Praise God. We made it through. And I think all of you are still here. And all of you are still with me. We now come to the second section. And it begins with what I think is one of the most beautiful expressions in all of Scripture. Two words. But now. But now. And so the Apostle Paul is introducing a contrast. And so let's imagine, come back with me. Let's imagine we're still in that courtroom. 
Let's imagine we are still standing before God's throne and the verdict has been read, guilty. And the sentence has been passed, condemnation. Uh, Paul, who has acted as the prosecuting attorney, he is standing over there, perhaps his arms crossed or behind his back, and he is silent. He has done what he intended to do. Uh, The witnesses, special revelation and general revelation, scripture and creation, they're still standing over there in the corner and kind of looking on, gazing at what's going to happen next. Uh, The defense attorneys, do you remember them? Mr. Religion and Mr. Good, shock and awe. They are dazed and confused, drool coming out of the corner of their mouths. They don't know what to say. They don't know where to look. They're just staring down and cannot believe what has just transpired. And there we stand. There we stand before the judge. All are under sin, condemned, acknowledging that his wrath is revealed against us because we have suppressed the truth of God by our unrighteousness. It is over. All we are waiting for is for the sentence to be carried out. That's it. There are no more objections. There is no defense to be presented. There is no delay from our perception and estimation, our understanding. The guilty verdict has been rendered. The sentence has been passed. And all we are waiting for is the execution of the sentence. And then all of a sudden, use your imagination, all of a sudden we hear God speak. The judge, and he utters these words, but now. I hope I'm not taking too much liberty. But now, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm prepared to do. I have included a statement in the sermon notes. You find it because this is the central point of this message. You get this, you've got everything. And it is as if God now in our passage, verses 21 through 26, summarizing in just a couple of sentences, a couple of phrases, it is as if he now says to us as we stand, guilty, condemned, sentence passed before him, but now I am willing I am willing to change the verdict from guilty to innocent. I am willing to change the sentence from death to life. I am willing to declare you righteous instead of unrighteousness. And what word escapes from our mouths as we stand there? How? How? All Paul does in this text is answer the question, how? God is willing to change the verdict from guilty to innocent. He is willing to change the sentence from death to life. And he is willing to declare us righteous instead of unrighteous. How? The answer is threefold. The first part is this. This righteous standing that God offers comes through faith. The righteous standing that God offers comes through faith. Look at verse 21. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. In other words, this isn't going to have anything to do with your works. It will not have anything to do with your performance. By the law, you stand condemned. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, this isn't new. 
This has always been God's way of salvation. And then he articulates it in verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. In case we missed it, he's going to repeat it in verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. He's going to repeat it in verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is how the verdict is changed. It comes through faith. And so again, it is as if God were saying to us, I'm willing to change the verdict from guilty to innocent. I'm willing to change the sentence from death to life. I am willing to declare you righteous instead of unrighteous. Here's what you must do. Absolutely nothing. Because there is nothing you can do. Paul makes it clear. Look at what he states there. Very last statement of verse 22. There is no distinction. It's not like some people are doing well while others are doing poorly. It's not like some are scoring high on the good work scale while others are scoring high on the bad work scale. It is not as if God is looking out and he's making a distinction between men and women. Well, he's pretty good, he's pretty good, she's pretty good. He isn't, she isn't, he isn't. No, there is no distinction. Here is the problem, verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Do you know what that is? That's a soundbite. We love soundbites today, don't we? Verse 23 is a soundbite. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know what it is? It's simply a summary of everything Paul has said from chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20. Everything he has said in that first section, condemnation, he now gives us a soundbite ringing in our ears. All have sinned. All are under sin. I have demonstrated it. And they fall short of the glory of God. You just look back. Look back, for example, into chapter 3. And you look at what Paul declares at the end of verse 10. None is righteous, no, not one. And then again, he demonstrates the extent of our sinfulness. We are sinful in what we think no one understands. We are sinful in what we want. No one seeks for God. We are sinful in what we choose. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We are sinful in what we say. Their throat is an open grave. Sinful in what we do, verse 15. Their feet are swift as shed blood. And sinful in what we fear, verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And therefore, Paul, God is saying, look, this is how it's going to work. I will change the sentence. But you must understand this. There is nothing you have done. There is nothing you are doing. And there is nothing you could ever do to cause me to change the sentence. You will receive and you can only receive this righteousness, this righteous standing through faith. We all understand what faith is? It's a confusing word today. Lots of confusion surrounding this concept. Uh, Tuesday, 
I returned from a week in, in Brazil, and I'm going to state a profound fact. I flew in a plane. Isn't that profound? I flew in a plane. I did not decide to make wings out of feathers, strap those wings to my arms, get up on the rooftop, although some of you would probably like to have seen this, of Grace Community Church, take a long running start, and then start begin, begin flapping like a wild man, expecting to fly myself to Brazil. Do you understand? I flew in a plane. That plane was the object of my faith. You know, I might even have really, 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 really believed that I could make wings out of feathers, flap them really hard, and get myself to Brazil. I might have believed it. I might have been convinced. I might have dismissed you all as naysayers, and I might have proclaimed to be a man of great faith. And you still would have thought I was crazy. Oh, we must be clear on the object of faith. I get dismayed every time I hear it, and I hear it all the time in our day. Oh, she's a woman of great faith. Oh, his faith is so strong. Oh, my, oh this is one I, I love, which actually is a synonym for really strongly dislike. Oh, my faith sustains me. I'm always, th- here's what I'm always thinking to myself. Here's a little bird that's always chirping in my mind. Faith in what? I couldn't care less how strong your faith is. It really doesn't, it really doesn't interest me. I couldn't care less how strong you think it is or weak you think it is, or if you're a person of such faith. Here's what I want to know. What is the object of our faith? It must be rooted and fixed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our faith, as I flew to Brazil, was in that plane. You know, it's it's quite marvelous, really. I could have had the strongest conviction, just the strongest, overwhelming feeling of confidence that I could make these wings and flap and fly my way to Brazil. It would have done me no good. But you know, I could have been carried onto that plane I could have been carried onto that plane with fear and trepidation. I could have been carried onto that plane half sedated because I hate flying and I was nervous and I didn't know what was going to happen or whether or not that plane was going to get me there. But the fact that I got on the plane, right, gets me to Brazil. Do you understand what I'm saying? It is not the strength of your faith. It is not how wild-eyed and crazy we are. It is not how strong a feeling we have inside. The question is this, what do we believe in? Who are we trusting in? What are we resting in? And God gives us this great invitation. He extends this wonderful invitation. I am prepared to change the verdict from guilty to innocent. And here's how you will receive it. You will receive it through faith. In what? It's coming. The second thing Paul says is this. This righteous standing comes by grace. And so look at what he says, his comments in verse 24. And are justified, and so all have sinned. There's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And here's the only hope, verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift. 
Now, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, and if my memory, which fails me at times, but I think I'm right here, my memory serves me correctly. I should have checked this out before I got up here this morning, but here we go. The authorized version, the King James Version, translates that expression as a gift freely. I'm looking for someone to nod up and down. No one's using the King. Oh, there's one. Okay. Freely. And so that's how the King James Version translates it. Are justified by His grace freely. That's the idea, as a gift. This is interesting. We find the word in John 15, positive it's John 15, almost positive it's verse 25, where the Lord Jesus says, he uses the same word. Here's how it's translated in the ESV. They hated me without a cause. There's the word. They hated me freely, or they hated me as a gift. They hated me without a cause. That is Paul's point here. His point is this. We are justified without a cause. Oh, that's beautiful. That is delectable. We are justified without a cause. It is freely. It is given freely. It is a gift. And so God is saying, I'm willing to change the verdict from guilty to innocent. I'm willing to change the sentence from death to life. I'm willing to declare you righteous instead of unrighteous. And here's why. Not because of anything in you. No. I do this as a gift. I do this freely. I do this without being compelled by anything in you. I do this without a cause. Oh, does that not encourage you this morning, believer? And I was, I was meditating on it this past week. And I, how, do we, how, do, how do we convey this? How do, we, how do we enter into that? I mean, really step into it. And I don't know. This is the best I could come up with. And forgive me if it's not good enough. But here's the best I could come up with. When I, when I say ISIS... And you all know the acronym now, because it's all over the news. I-S-I-S. What do you think? More importantly, how do you feel? Okay. Confession time. I think smart bombs. As a matter of fact, I'm beyond that. I think carpet bombing. Right? We hear of what's going on, and our reaction to something like that is what? It's repulsion repugnancy, and just this antithesis then between that kind of conduct, what we esteem, we might need to repent of those feelings, we might need to take a hard, long look at ourselves, that's not my point, nor the road I'm going down. My point is simply this, that that kind of behavior, that kind of conduct, it stirs in us such a sense of repugnancy that as we look at some of what's gone on in some of those videos, And some of the incidents of horrific, horrific actions, there is nothing that causes us to feel any compassion, is there? Let's be honest now. There is nothing that stirs in us some overwhelming sense of mercy. Well, there's someone I'd like to do good to. No, it is repugnancy. Are you getting the idea now? What ISIS is to us... We are to God, yet it's far worse than that. 
He justifies us without a cause. Oh, I find that so encouraging. There is nothing in me that compels God to make this offer whereby he is prepared to change his verdict. That which I so deserve, prepared to change his verdict from guilty to innocent. No, he justifies us by grace, freely. Paul's third point is this. This righteous standing comes in Christ. And so read with me again from the outset of verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift. And so the righteous standing comes through faith. The righteous standing comes by grace. But I'm still wondering how. How does God pull this off? Here it is, the middle of verse 24. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. There's the how. In Christ. Tremendous word, propitiation. If you don't know it, I encourage you to learn it. Propitiation, to propitiate. It is the idea, it comes echoing from the Old Testament, this idea that God's justice it has been offended by our sin. Therefore, God's wrath toward us has been kindled. Therefore, to turn away his wrath and to secure his grace, first of all, foremost importance, his justice must be satisfied. The penalty has to be paid. The verdict is guilty. The verdict is condemned. That penalty must be paid. It must be fulfilled. And here's the wonder of wonders. It is if the judge now speaks and he says, here's what I'm going to do. I am going to turn that judgment on myself. My son will take your sin upon himself. My son will take your guilt upon himself. My son will take your sentence upon himself. And marvel of marvels, my son will take my wrath upon himself. Christ Jesus is displayed by the Father, displayed as a propitiation in his blood upon Calvary's cross, where he becomes sin for us. All are under sin. He becomes sin for us, and he bears our guilty verdict in full. We sing it sometimes. Favorite stanza of, one, of mine out of one of the old hymns. Death and the curse were in our cup. O Christ was full for thee. But thou hast drained the last dark drop. Tis empty now for me. That bitter cup. Love drank it up. Left but the love for me. That is the how. This righteous standing comes through faith. This righteous standing comes by grace. And this righteous standing comes in Christ. But you know, Paul isn't finished there. He adds a couple of thoughts. Look at the middle of verse 25. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, 
It passed over former sins. And so this propitiation upon Calvary's cross, namely Christ's death, whereby he bore our judgment, our punishment, that this propitiation actually had this other purpose. It was to show God's righteousness in the past because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Well, here's what I want to know. What sins are these? What are these former sins? Former to what? Well, former to the propitiation, former to Christ. So what sins is he referring to? I dare say he's referring to Abraham's sins. He's referring to Lot's sins, Sarah's sins, Rachel's sins, Jacob's sins, David's sins, Solomon's sins, Ruth's sins, Rahab's sins, all the way up to John the Baptist, his sins. That the blood of bulls and goats cannot cleanse us from unrighteousness. They never cleansed anyone from unrighteousness. The blood of all those bulls and goats and lambs slain in the Old Testament did not accomplish anything. All they did was point to the ultimate, ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ upon Calvary's cross. And as God dealt with his people prior to the cross, he saved them. He justified them. He altered their verdict from guilty to innocent on the basis of what he knew his son would accomplish at Calvary's cross where he was displayed as a propitiation, thereby displaying the righteousness of God in passing over, forbearing their sins. But Paul adds something secondly here in verse 26. He says, not only does it show God's righteousness in the past, but it now shows God's righteousness right now in the present. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, says Paul, so that he, that is God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's a great statement. If the Lord had simply obliterated humanity, if the Lord hadn't spared Noah and his family and had obliterated humanity with the flood, or had wiped out humanity at any other point in history, God would have been just, but he would not have been the justifier. If God had simply received his people without ever displaying a propitiation to satisfy his offended justice and pay the penalty for our sin, he would have been the justifier, but he would not have been very just. He is both just and justifier. The propitiation in Christ's blood demonstrates the righteousness of God whereby he can offer to us, he can extend to us this alteration in our legal standing because his justice is fully satisfied in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This righteous standing comes in Christ. It comes by grace, it comes through faith, and it leads us to that great reformation truth that we celebrate, which is what? Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's a tremendous message Paul is emphasizing here, demonstrating this justification, this alteration in status, not dependent on us, but a manifestation of the grace of God and an act rooted in this 
act of his beloved son, the Lord Jesus, upon Calvary's cross, whereby God changes our legal status. He changes the verdict from guilty to innocent. He changes the sentence from death to life. And he changes our standing from unrighteous to righteous. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce, I think it was, who said, this is the single most important passage in the word of God. Because here we have in such clear, precise terms, the key to salvation, the basis of salvation, and God's command to us to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ unto salvation. It's a message which sits so lightly on so many people today. I was thinking of this too, this past week, of how such a great truth seems, just doesn't seem to resonate with people. Uh, it does not seem to be as compelling as it ought to be. It seems to weigh far too lightly on people. And, and I was starting to think of this in terms of a, of, a, of a film that came out last year. I haven't seen the film. I'm not recommending you see the film. But it was something just fascinating about the, the, the story or the premise. The film was called, I think it was called Gravity. And in this film, the, the basic storyline, if I understand correctly, is this. Two astronauts are at the space station. They're on a spacewalk. They become detached from the space shuttle. And the oxygen is starting to run out. Somehow make it to some other spacecraft, the oxygen starts to run out there, and then they make it to another spacecraft, the oxygen runs out there, something blows up. One of them, I think, eventually makes it home. I think that's the story. What is interesting, what I find fascinating about it is this, that there is this series, apparently, in this movie of, of, of this, these, these astronauts facing death as they become detached from the source of oxygen, and they're aware of their danger, they're aware, aware of their peril, and do all they can in order to get back. But it's actually kind of fanciful. Do you know what happens when you become detached from oxygen? I guess as an astronaut, or even when it comes to altitude, you get up really high. Do you know what happens as you slowly, almost imperceptibly, you, 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 the quantity of oxygen you're intaking lessens and lessens and lessens and lessens? Do you know what happens? You start laughing. You actually become giddy and find the most absurd things to be hilarious, and end up laughing yourself to sleep and ultimately to death, gravity. How many people actually going through life just like that? They are detached from oxygen, detached from God, still in that first section of this epistle, under that sentence of condemnation, under that sentence all are under sin, going through life almost giddy unaware of the peril they find themselves in, unaware of the magnitude of this gospel and what it is God has accomplished and offers in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do I say that? I say that because I'm convinced there is someone here this morning who falls into that category. Life, whatever it is, giddy, inconsequential. Life passing you by, involved in this, involved in that. Not a care in the world, going on living however you please, while this glorious gospel rests weightless upon you. Oh, my friend, do you understand who you are outside of Christ? Do you understand that God's verdict 
has already been passed. All we are waiting for is the sentence to be carried out. And do you understand that your only hope of salvation resides in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ? And have you believed in him? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no distinction, but we are justified through faith in Christ, given as a redeemer for us when God displayed him publicly as a propitiation in his blood. Our Father, we ask of you this day that you would impress this wonderful truth and reality upon us. We pray that our joy might be found in peace with you. In this great truth that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And as we turn our attention now to the Lord's Supper, and as we see the bread and as we see this cup, may we truly be reminded of what it is Christ has accomplished and exactly how he has accomplished it. And what a tremendous testimony it is to your covenantal love for your people. We pray that you'd receive our praise. We ask you to accept our thanksgiving as we offer it in Christ's name. Amen.